So tonight, we will be reading from uh, Psalm 2, and we will read through the entire psalm, and the topic for tonight is the Lord's anointed reigns. So hopefully, through this message, the, the, the aim here is simply to take a look at the hopelessness of wicked kings and rulers uh, of this earth devising vain plans against the Lord. We'll talk about God's response to such wicked rulers and, uh, and kings who, who devise such plans against the Lord, such futile plans against him. And also we see, we will see the warning issued to such evil doers. Sprinkled throughout will be examples of what this looks like in our day and also what it looked like in the history of the Bible. And I will admit right now, this is not anything close to saying all that can be said about this psalm. But as we have prayed, we just ask that the Lord will speak to us through his word. So if you turn into your Bible to Psalm 2, let us read starting in verse 1 all the way through the end. It says this, it says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning. O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So let's go and, and, and talk about what this means to us today. Why? Back to verse one. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing. So this question of why, it's saying for, for what reason, for what purpose, to what end? This has been described as madmen acting without cause. There is an astonishment behind the question. We might say, what in the world is their problem or what is the point that they are devising a vain thing? It is said that the why it's an expression of astonishment and horror and the equally 
foolish and impious attempt of the revolters. See, Christ came not to take away nations, but to bestow the kingdom of heaven on them. So why the outrage at this? You have wicked rulers who are set up in power to the point that they believe the nations and the people that reside in the nations are their possession. So the threat of someone mightier than they taking over their supposed possession or their nations causes them to panic and shuffle and find a way to eliminate the threat. See, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Yet wicked man believes that he can overthrow the creator. The very thought is vain. The passions in their hearts are vain. And their thoughts and passions are turned into actions, into futile plans. They devise a vain thing. What does it mean for something to be vain? The definition of that is so such as such as an action. What does it mean for an action or series of actions or a plan to be vain? It means this. It means that they are empty. They are worthless or that they have no substance, value or importance. So you take that into consideration and consider the pride of sin filled men causes them to plot and plan against the Lord. They grumble in vain. They imagine vain things. See, hatred and opposition to Christ is nothing new. It is of old and it is lasting. So though nations and governments rage against the kingdom of, of heaven, uh, <clears throat> sorry, lost my place. Um, <clears throat> the nations and governments rage against Christ and against the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ. The hatred, it's not limited to any particular group. So now some say that this, this psalm is exclusive to the Jews temper towards Christ. Others say it solely references the Gentiles' hostility toward him. However, this psalm is not limited in scope whenever it comes to hatred of Christ, the Lord's anointed. Whether Jew or Gentile, whether government or nation, it encompasses all kinds of unregenerate men who hate Christ. Peter and John, after being threatened, the council, uh, the council told them not to speak in the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter, uh, chapter four, verses 25 and 26. <clears throat> so Acts chapter four, 25 and 26. This is where we see this very psalm repeated. So, they were, they were threatened not to speak in the name of Jesus. They returned to their companions and reported what had been said to them. The response was their lifting up of 
their voices, the lifting up of their voices, and they quoted some of the very verses that we have just read. Acts 4.25, it says, Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. On verse 27, we see again that it's not just limited to uh, to the Jews and their contempt for Christ or, you know, just to Gentiles, but all types of unregenerate men. Verse 27 says, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So all kinds of unregenerate people. See, back to uh, Psalm 2, and in the first verse and the next two that will follow after that, we have a descriptive hatred of mankind against Christ. So uh, verse 1, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? This first verse opens suddenly with angry interrogation. There is an astonishment weaved into this question, as was stated in the Apostle song that we uh, that, that we read. When they lifted their voices and said, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them before they quoted from Psalm two. It was as if they were saying, God, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea, and even created this people, and they rage against you? So there is astonishment there. What is going on? Why are they raging? See, the heathens are raging against God. Creatures are up in arms against their creator. There should be an amazement at this. But as it was then, so it is Today, the heathen still rages against God, and as Charles Spurgeon wrote, he says, where there is much rage, there is generally some folly, and in this case, there is an excess of it. So let's continue to verse 2 as it wets a focus on kings and rulers. Verse 2, it says, the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying. So who are these kings and rulers of of the earth? They are people who have supreme power in governments of the world. These are rulers, princes, chief servants of kings, senators, Governors, legislators, law enforcement officials, these are men who are in power. These people, wicked men, tumultuously come together for the purpose of counsel with rage and a fixed purpose of plotting against the Lord, Jehovah, and his anointed, who we've, who we've 
already identified as Christ, the Messiah. They're coming together with one another against God and against Christ is believed to be in a military sense. So there is strategy and planning therein, and they're coming together against the Lord. Now, some, I would argue, are willing, well, most, I would say, are, are willing participants in an intense hatred against Christ, driving them into hopeless plotting against him. Others though they, I believe they, they ignorantly follow. And we talked about that. Pastor Joe talked about that a little bit this morning. They ignorantly follow in actions of opposition to Christ. Turn to Acts 3, and we'll read what Peter says in Acts 3. <clears throat> we'll start in verse 13. And this is after healing, the healing of a lame man through the power of Christ. Uh, the ignorance of men was addressed. So starting in verse thing, it says the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Verse 14, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And then jump over to verse 17. It says, and now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. So there are those who act in foolish ignorance and unbelief against Christ, but their ignorance is by no means a way to remove their guilt. The only way that their guilt can be removed is through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through his Christ through repentance and faith in Christ. And Peter commands the ignorant ones to repent. In verse 19, he starts, it starts off, he says, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. So let us not think, however, that this ignorance describes a majority. Though there may be many who are ignorant to what they are doing, the collective masses of wicked kings and rulers know exactly what they are doing, and they act out their deep-seated hatred of Christ. And they do this by setting themselves against him. They plan deliberately and skillfully against him, and they plan for the long haul, not temporarily. See, the battle rages on. Until the Lord says enough. So why did the kings and rulers spoken of in this psalm conspire together? It's not because they wanted material goods possessed by God or his anointed, 
nor did they only want to turn people against God, but they wanted God dead. They wanted his anointed dead. They wanted the blood of the anointed one. As Henry Smith commentated, he says, Yea, they took counsel, saith Matthew, to put him to death. They had the devil's mind, which is not satisfied, but with death. And how do they contrive it? He says, they took counsel about it. So, know that the plans of the wicked, these are not things that they are haphazard about. There is skill behind what they do when they come against Christ and his anointed. What does this look like in our day? Movements that are in stark contrast to God devolve. They devolve into laws that are in direct opposition to the word of God, which we stand on. We who are believers know that the risen Savior, we know full well that he is not dead, but that our Redeemer lives and the Spirit of the living God lives in us. Since the wicked rulers of this world can no longer kill Christ, they now want to kill you. As a representative of Christ, this is what it looks like. This is what we have been talking about for the past couple of Sundays. This is what it looks like in our day. Are you ready? Are you prepared for persecution? Will you rejoice whenever you are persecuted? See, wicked rulers and unregenerate men are plotting against the Lord. Again, skillfully, and believers should take the sword and shield of the word of God and bring the light of the gospel into conflict with darkness. We are not to sit idly back and watch as evil rages on, but we are act to actively call sinful men unto repentance and faith in Christ the anointed. Oh, that men were half as careful in God's service to serve him wisely as his enemies are to attack his kingdom craftily. Sinners have their wits about them, yet the saints are dull. Let that not be us. Let us not sit back and watch as the evil wickedness of this world moves on, then we say nothing about it. We need to wake up. We need to know that the Lord's anointed reigns. Let us follow the direction of our king. Verse 3 of Psalm 2, it says, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So what does this mean? What is a, a, a fetter? A fetter is a chain or a shackle for the feet. It is something that confines. What are cords? You can think of cords as strong as a very strong rope. These are things that confine or restrain. So those who are conspiring against the Lord are saying that we want to break away the restraints and confinements of the word of God. They do not want to be bound by it whatsoever, and they make no bones about it. See, 
The word of God says that marriage is between one man and one woman. The two unite as one forever. Wicked rulers, what do they say? They say, no, you don't want to remain married. You want a divorce for reasons not covered by the scripture. Go ahead. No fault, no contest, irreconcilable differences wins the day. Divorce and remarry as much as you'd like. You do not want to unite in marriage as the Bible clearly defines. And you want to enter into homosexual marriage. Wicked rulers say, go ahead, break the confines of scripture. Man, be united with man if you want to. Woman, be united with woman if you want to. We'll put a law into place to make sure that it is legal for you. After all, love is love, right? Who are you, Christian, to tell me who I can and cannot marry? The Word of God says that man is made in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. Wicked kings and rulers say none of that. If a male decides that he wants to be a female or a female decides that she wants to be a male, make it lawful for doctors to cut off the organs that God has given them to make them feel comfortable in their skin. Dispose of what the Lord has created them with, what he has gifted them with to make them feel comfortable. Oh, and by the way, if you stand in opposition to this, what do our wicked rulers say? You're racist. You're transphobic. They make the Christians out to be the hateful ones. The word of God says you shall not murder. Murder is the unjustified taking of human life, with especially, especially with malice or forethought. Evil governments say, nah, woman, young girl, if you get pregnant and you do not want your baby, you can go to your local abortion mill and have that baby ripped apart limb by limb. We will make sure that you are protected by our laws. You know, because although the preborn human living in your womb where it should be the most protected is ripped apart limb by limb and their skull is crushed, to a certain death, you're a victim too. So we want to protect your right. See, the kings of the earth and the rulers say, let us tear their fetters. Let us break the cords of God's restraint in the design of marriage, image-bearing, of God in man, murder, and so on, the sinful pride of kings and rulers, and all regenerate men, unregenerate men at large, is at such a high level, in their arrogance, they believe it to be such an easy task to break the restraint of Almighty God. It is not an easy task. And there are consequences that follow. How absurd it is to want in the slightest degree to cast the yoke of a loving Savior away for the love of sin. 
To a graceless neck, the yoke of Christ is intolerable. But to the saved sinner, it is easy and light. We may judge ourselves by this. Do we love that yoke or do we wish to cast it from us? That is a question that we must answer. What is the Lord's response to all of this commotion, all of this rage against him and against his anointed? Verse 4, it tells us what that response is. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He mocks them. See, this is a quiet dignity of our Lord who reigns on high. It is impossible to stop the kingdom of Christ. There is no rival that is equal to the almighty king, Jesus Christ. See, he has not risen up to do battle with these foes. He despises them. He laughs at them. Yet, he holds men in derision. Laughter and derision are borrowed tone, uh, terms of emotion. This helps us to understand the mind of who God is. God is not driven by passion as men are. As men sometimes laugh whenever they're they have a sure victory over their foes. When that victory is at hand, they laugh. So too does God laugh at those who are opposed to his anointed because he knows that this battle is won. And then in verse 5, it says, Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, Now notice, what it says here, it does not say that God, because of the folly of sinful man, he, he uh, tries to do battle with them by jumping off of his throne, suiting up for battle, wrestling against his foes. No, it says that he will speak. Do you see the power there? He need not go off into some raging tirade. All he needs to do is speak. The breath of his lips is enough to scatter his enemies. May God arise and his enemies be scattered. At a time when the power of God's foes seems to be at its height, at its highest degree, the destruction of the wicked will come by the very word of God. They will see his power. They will know that such a display of power can only come from God. Every mouth will be stopped. His enemies will be utterly destroyed. How pointless are their acts to try to dethrone the Christ. All of their vain attempts, they're rising in power. They're rising to heights that maybe even they didn't imagine they could get to, only to realize that the king is already there. He rules. He reigns. He has all power and authority in heaven and on earth. God will speak and say to the detriment of his foes, despite your gatherings against me, despite your godless wisdom, your attempts to be God were in vain. The Lord in his righteous wrath will vex 
them sore in his displeasure, as the King James Version says. It will come upon them suddenly, unexpectedly. Their destruction will be eternal. The plans that they have devised will be turned upside down. Those who were tormented at the hands of these evil, wicked rulers and kings will appear blessed and enter into the eternal rest of Christ. The Messiah whom was despised will see every knee bow to him. Christ will be exalted. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, it says this, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are in, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May we bow to our king. Verse 6, it says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. See, he's saying to these wicked rulers, what you have been trying to do, God is saying, I have done already. I have set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. The Lord's anointed reigns. He reigns now and forever. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. See, this should bring comfort to the souls of the saints, knowing, yes, that there will be times of persecution, but the Lord's anointed reigns. He is upon the holy mountain of Zion from where the blessings of God flow. The Lord is set on Zion. The Christ has been anointed as king. It has been stated that when the priest and rulers prevailed on Pilate to crucify their anointed king, they eventually forwarded his exaltation. Martin Luther said this, Who thought when Christ suffered and the Jews triumphed that God was laughing all the time? Christ, God's equal, God's firstborn, God's only begotten son has been chosen and set up as king forever, never to give up the throne. Charles Spurgeon says, Jesus sits upon the throne of grace and the throne of power in the midst of his church. In him is Zion's best safeguards. Let her citizens be glad in him. Verse 7. It says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Here we see that another person is speaking. Someone else is coming to the forefront. It is the anointed son of God declaring his rights and his sovereignty, issuing a warning to his enemies that doom is sure should they continue to rage against him. From the background emerges the anointed one, as Romans 1.4 says, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
what a wonderful Savior that we have and what great confidence should be bestowed upon us whenever we know and realize that he has conquered all. And no matter the persecution that we may have to suffer for the sake of Christ, to whom believers are bound, we can rest in him. Why? Because the Lord's anointed reigns. He is the Messiah. He is ruler over all, and no matter the manner of evil that we suffer, he is sovereign over it all. And in an instant, he can crush those who rage against us because of him. So let us rest in the Son. You are my Son, says God. This speaks of the divinity of Emmanuel, God with us. Though he humbled himself, he is equal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, three in one. Verse eight says, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. See, it was customary for kings to give to those whom they favored whatever it is that they asked for. See, Joseph, though he did not ask, I think this is a fair example of favor of a king over him. Pharaoh, after Joseph interpreted his dreams, told Joseph, you shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. We can also look to Esther chapter 5, verse 6. It says, as they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be done. That's the king's favor upon someone. Finally, it's this same favor of a king that ushered in the killing of John the Baptist. For when the daughter of Herodias danced for him on his birthday, he was so pleased that he promised to give her whatever she wanted. Matthew 14, 7 tells us her request at the prompting of her mother was the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And why? Because John took a stand for biblical marriage, telling Herod it was not lawful to have the wife of his own brother. See, this brings us to the point. When you stand and preach the gospel of Christ and stand on the truth of Scripture, you will be persecuted. No doubt about it. But don't be bothered by the, the persecution that comes because, again, as I said, we can rest in Christ. Now, the words here say, ask of me. In, in this verse, it says, ask of me in reference to the Christ. Now, some may say, if he's part of the Godhead, why does he have to ask? Listen, don't let that trouble you, especially if you are a believer. Rather, see, this should be a source of comfort for you. You see, Jesus depended on the Father, and though he was equal with God, he did not count equality a thing to be grasped. 
but he humbled himself, as Philippians 2 tells us. But why should you take comfort in his asking? Because we see the anointed one in his function as a priest making intercession. Just as in John 17, 20, when he prayed the high priestly prayer, he made intercession for his disciples and for all who would believe in him through the word of the apostles, that they would be made one as he and the Father were one. So don't be bothered by the fact that it says he asked. He, it says to ask and I will give you. See, this is the intercession of Christ, and the intercession of Christ is the hope of the world. So take joy, sons and daughters of God. The Lord's anointed reigns, and he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 9, it says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Jesus came to bring the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ to the nations. How vain a thing for the nations not to submit to him by way of repentance and faith in the gospel. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the kingdom of God cannot be hindered because power is given to the Christ to execute vengeance on his enemies that will not reconcile. The rod of iron or scepter is a sign of sovereign power, and it is with this rod that the Lord will absolutely crush his foes, all of them. Earthenware is mentioned here to make note of the frailty. It has nothing to do with value. See, we've all likely seen pottery or ceramic, uh, ceramics broken at the hands of others or even our own. And if it is something that is of value to us that we have broken, we want to try to put that back together. But this that is being talked about here, there is no way to put it back together. This is a complete destruction. The message conveyed here is that the earthenware will be obliterated to where only worthless shards remain. So complete and eternal destruction will come to those who continue to rage against the Lord's anointed Christ. He will destroy them. Those who will not bend must break. Potter's vessels are not to be restored if dashed in pieces, and in the ruin and the ruin of sinners will be hopeless if Jesus shall smite them. Ye sinners seek his grace, whose wrath you cannot bear. Fly to the shelter of his cross and find salvation there. Verse 10, it says, Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Exhortation is now being given to the kings and the rulers of the earth who have taken counsel against the Lord and his anointed. The exhortation is to be wise. Do not delay. Bow to the Lord now so that your souls may be saved. And that's saved from a certain destruction to come 
in hell. Verse 11, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. There must be a holy reverent fear mixed with the Christian's joy. Hebrews 12, 28 uh, through 29, it says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable sacrifice with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The, uh, in, in Philippians 2.12, where it tells us to work out our soul salvation with fear and trembling. That's just telling us that the salvation that has been given to us, the spirit of God that lives within us. It does not say work for your salvation. It says work out your salvation. So if you are of Christ, if you are in Christ, you work out your soul's salvation with fear and trembling. Fear without joy is torment, and joy without holy fear would be presumption. Let us not presume upon the Lord's kindness and mercy toward us, and let us call those who are in opposition to God to submit to him. We need to instruct them. As verse 12 says, do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Another translation says, which the translation you may have in front of you, it says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. I like that translation, which says lest, and it lest, it includes the word lest. The word lest, L-E-S-T, L-E-S-T, it's a Greek word which means for fear that. This shows that there is an expected punishment to come for those who do not submit to Christ, who do not do homage to him. No one who hears the gospel can give an excuse for perishing because it is only after their hardness of heart that they treasure wrath for themselves on the day of wrath, as Romans 2 uh, verses 5 through 8 tells us. Do homage to the Son. So, what does all of this mean? Brothers and sisters, we live in a day and age where we witness so much evil running rampant uh, around us, seemingly tearing down the foundations of the world. But do not lose heart. Take courage. The Lord's anointed reigns. Read Psalm 110 whenever you have a chance. See, we must go forth boldly complain, uh, uh, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ calling dead sinners to repentance and faith in Christ. This does not mean that it's we do this only when we happen to stumble into a comfortable conversation at a coffee shop that maybe once we make friends with someone, then we tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, we are to, as Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20 tells us, we are to go 
and make disciples. Jesus said that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we are to take the gospel to wicked kings and rulers of this earth and call them to repentance and faith in Christ. Warn them of the danger that awaits them should they continue to rage on against the Lord. We are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Christ is king, and we do not have to bow to the evils of this world. We don't want to speak their language like we talked about with abortion. They say that abortion is legal. We say, no, abortion is not legal, no matter what you have on the books. Why? Because the Lord's anointed reigns, and he said that abortion is murder. You shall not Murder. You want to enter into a homosexual marriage? They say, the world says that it is legal. We say no. And why do we say no? Because the Lord's anointed reigns and he says that marriage is between one man, one woman. The two unite to become one. We do not bow to the wicked decrees of this evil world, but we call these wicked rulers in to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We call them to serve him with fear, to kiss the son that he not become angry. But we do not want to look past the fact that we must first do homage to the son. Have you submitted to his rule? and authority. If you have not, repent and believe today, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Let's pray.